Hey, welcome to the latest episode of Shit We Don't Talk About, the podcast that takes on topics that need more open and honest discussion, which means some of these topics are triggering, so please take care when listening, and I'll always give you a trigger warning. For instance, here's one. Every episode contains swear words. You've been warned. Make sure to check out the show notes, which include an accessibility transcript of the podcast and all of the links for our guests at shitwedonttalkaboutpodcast.com. It's episode 71, and my guest is my good friend, Tony Harvey. You'll love this deep dive discussion into his 30-year experience as a black man in mainstream media. All right, here we go. Hello, my friend. How are you? How are you doing, man? Good. To Good. See you. It's nice to see you too. All right. So if you, you don't know, if, you they, thank you. You too. You got your background of we're going to talk about what your background is. Now, listen, this is a podcast, but we are eventually going to put it on YouTube and right behind Tony is a photograph that he took at Bruce's beach, which is an integral part of this interview and his story. But let me give you just a little bit of backstory. So we were just reminiscing how we went to the same grade school together. We grew up in Champaign, Illinois, folks, home of the U of I, home of Tony Harvey and Mia Voss. <laughs> and we graduated. We are class of 83 of Central High School. Yeah, Pay Central High School. We are proud Maroons. I know that sounds like an odd name. Maroon for life. We are Maroon for life. That was our that was our weird ass mascot for our high school. <laughs> <laughs> so you're coming out of Sacramento. This is obviously Sacramento is a, a huge part of your life because you're part of the newspaper there. Yes, That's yes. That's what we're yes. gonna talk uh, about. I've been uh, in Sacramento since 1988. I've been here for 34 years. I was uh, attending uh, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and I moved out here and said I'm not going back. So I ended up, you know, been here for the duration, and I ended up uh, graduating graduating at uh, Sacramento State University in uh, photojournalism and uh, uh, journalism. And uh, I've been in the newspaper business for almost 30 years. Uh, I told you. You know, before we uh, went on the air, you know, that, that really all, all stems rooted back to, you know, my uh, upbringing in uh, Champaign-Urbana because I used to deliver the newspaper and I picked up a black and white camera at the uh, Don Moyers Boys and Girls Club. And that's pretty much how things uh, has taken off. But yes, I've been here. I am a surplant in Northern California, about an hour and 15 minutes uh, east of uh, San Francisco Bay. So that's been my life. And my career, no. Yeah, I love the 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 rich history of how you got started with both of these things that have become your your world and your passion because you're also an author as yes. well too. So you've kind of you have this this fun mix of you know crime reporting, writing writing about um, like the the serial killer book that that you wrote when we Moore did Simon our Junior, the Oak Park's uh, handyman, uh, the homicidal handyman of Oak Park, uh, which a uh, case. That happened here in the middle uh, 1980s, and I picked up on that as soon as I, you know, moved to uh, Sacramento about these serial killer cases, these serial serial murders that was happening around here. And this particular person happened to be black, so which, as it, we know, yeah, right. It wasn't really fit the description back then in the 80s, but it's becoming more common, you know, uh, uh, with black serial killers. They, they 
part of the melting pot right now. But uh, what was interesting about that, I was working in a newspaper, the Sacramento Union. I wasn't in editorial at the time. I was in uh, distribution. Uh, call me up, I'll get your paper dispatched out to you, anything like that. But, I, you know, the, his murder trial, his uh, his, his uh, trial had just started at the time. Oh, what the hell is this going on? You know, a black serial killer can't be. So when I had finished up my studies at uh, Sacramento State University, I said, I want to write a book. And the first subject that I wanted to write about, which I won't go into details about it, it was about the uh, Black Panther uh, and a cop that got killed here in the 1970s. But someone was like, hey, you should write a story about this case. And I already had a little bit of knowledge about that uh, and, and the area where he was doing it at, in uh, Oak Park, which is uh, which was one of the first suburbs here in uh, Sacramento. But it ended up being, you know, a low-income low area, too. So that tell you what type of victims that he was looking sure. for. So, and it took me eight years to write that book. It came out uh, 2012. Matter of fact, it came out when I was visiting uh, Champagne. August. I was going to say that was uh, right because then our reunion was well, the next year, 2013, yeah. and that and it had just October, come out. October 2013. Yeah, and what's interesting too about that when you think about y'all, you need to recognize that Tony was doing this before everybody started their true crime podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now it's a thing all over the place, but you got bit by the bug. You know, yeah, I'm with, all you know, being a journalist. I just spent all the money, so don't even think about. <laughs> don't come at him. Did you get pushback for writing something about a, a black serial killer? Because of course we know I that I did numbers. not want to do it. I did not want to do it. I really did not want to do it because of the elements mm -hmm. of the case. Um sex, crack cocaine, uh of course murder uh uh mental illness sexual mm -hmm. assaults rapes mm -hmm. uh it, it was just too much for me at, at, at one point then i i had this conversation with my mother uh rosa lee guillory who still lives in uh champagne and she's like yeah I, I understand all of that but this that you know and we don't talk about these things in our community our black community and she's like that story has to be told and that gave me a full confidence of uh, what I was doing. And I kept right on researching it, mm. doing these interviews. Like I said, it took took eight years, you know, to put it together because I'm talking about a black serial killer, something that's hardly, hardly known at that time. And, uh, you know, it, it worked out there. But no, I did not want to do this story. Yeah, there were a couple of people that from back at that time, their name knew they were going to be flushed out because I had all these court documents and I knew these names. And I knew how to find these people. And of course, they didn't want me to write it to them. And I ended up using a, a, a nom de plume. Antonym, uh, not a uh, synonym for their name. You know, I replaced oh, their name to, oh, protect, okay. to protect their privacy and stuff like that. So they wouldn't feel uh, um, that it was being invaded and they feel threatened about it because their lives has changed since then. Then there was sure. a lot of people that passed away and anything like that. But yeah, I did. Get some pushback on it, but it didn't stop me. I mean, uh, a lot of the information that I pulled together was public domain. You know, I'm talking about court records and things. So I feel comfortable with what I was doing. And a lot of people, uh, after the book came out, came to me and want to be part of the, you know, 
the revision because I'm going to put out a second edition on that book. So, yeah, love that. Sure, and I and I. What's interesting, timing wise, now this is going to date this podcast a little bit, is we're we're in the middle of this big hoopla about Netflix doing this documentary on on Dahmer, and the interesting piece of that too. Two pieces you you may be aware of too is one, which a lot of pushback because Netflix did not reach out to the victim's family, so this is kind of coming out of nowhere. They did not use at all these the respect that you did and the journalism and how you covered that. So I need to give you mad kudos on, on that of saying, hey, thank you for doing that because it, there really is a lot of pushback, especially because a lot of Dahmer's victims were black and brown and were, I mean, if you kind of look at it too, I'm gonna to dive into it for a second. This is where the police are kind of getting their ass handed to them because people are like, oh yeah, it was really easy to pass over victims that were marginalized. And you thought it was really easy to just be like, eh, it's okay. He, they really, they it, really. It's, it's been an interesting that. time for this. Yeah, they did. Have you caught really that? But I'll tell you, uh, you know, just real quickly too, man. Um, one of the big things that helped me out as far as you know, researching that book, and you know, later on trying to you know protect some of these people's lives, uh, was media law. I took a few media law classes at a uh, Sacramento State University, and I was really got to understand the, uh, uh, you know, uh, of a uh, liable, uh, malicious mm -hmm. uh, reporting and, and things like that. And I didn't want to get caught up into that. Okay, now, now you see Netflix might be facing some lawsuits and stuff because, you know, if you're using their names and uh, likeness and likeness uh, and things story. like that, that, that one thing that I really was conscious of trying to stay away, stay away from, okay? Well, re-traumatizing people, right? Oh, shoot, I was traumatized myself. I had to detox from that, <laughs> you know, that story. Right, but it's the same thing. You did uh, a lot of people didn't want to relive what was going on, but like my mom said, you know, it was a story that had to, had to be told. But I I think I did justice as far as trying to protect some of the people, you know, because there's still a lot of victims around Sacramento, you know, and it there's still made there's still people missing, you know, from this case. We don't know what serial killers do. I mean, you might have six or seven murders, but they probably killed 10 or 15 of people and those seven or eight are still missing, okay? And there's probably some things, sexual assaults that wasn't reported, so. Yeah. yeah. What is it you, we, we as, as you all know, if you listen to my podcast, I always have a very extensive conversation with my guests beforehand. And then we, we recreate the magic when we hit the record button with one thing that you said when we were referencing actually, and what we're going to dive into this for a second, because I do want you to talk about your tour in 2019 yes. was part of your journalism piece, but we were talking about, um, this is what we know <laughs> as far as yeah. what we know. And that that's interesting with that piece too. Let's veer into uh, you being in journalism. I don't know what the percentage is, obviously the, the, the high percentage of, of males in, in journalism, but yes. um, being a black man in journalism and starting yes, to, yes. you know, 20, uh, almost 30 years ago. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, things have changed changed a lot. I told you I started in, um, I actually started at Sacramento City College before I got to the four-year university here, uh, Sacramento State University, which is um, commonly uh, recognizably known as California State University, Sacramento, but we call it Sacramento State University. But first I started off at uh, Sacramento uh, Community College, which is 
almost kind of like downtown Sacramento. Um, and I, I, you know, when I was at the Sacramento Union, that was my first newspaper there. And I was in distribution, circulation, basically. And I wrote something and I took it to the entertainment editor and he really liked it. I forget what it was. It was something about entertainment. And he was like, hey, you, you should go to school. You might have something going on here. And Sacramento Union was having issues, a problem, you know. I'm about 27, 28, so I'm past my college years. I'm still trying to finish up, uh, you know, to get my uh, college degree. And I said, you know, why not? Because when I was going to SIU, I was taking computer programming courses, and you see how that got blown up. I should be a billionaire today. <laughs> You have vision in the, in the <laughs> mid eighties, right? <laughs> right. But uh, my my love, you know, uh, just was really uh, to writing and, and, and photography. As I said, you know, I first picked up a camera when I was at the Champagne Urbana uh, Boys and Girls Club. It's called the Boys and Girls Club today, but it was just a boys club at the uh, Don Moore down there on Second and Park, and uh, on the North End, <clears throat> yeah. and just got. You know what? I don't know. Just real. I, I picked up a, a Chicago Defender in the, in the boys' club. I don't know how I ended up in there because we we're mainly Ebony and Jet magazines all over the place. Okay, that was the black mm-hmm. news for us. You know, okay, and you know they were locate their uh, uh, company, Johnson Publishing Company, was right there in Chicago and stuff. But so so was the Chicago Defender. So I don't know how that picked. It was the black news we got there. Like we had a black newspaper. This is not like the Gazette or the uh, or the uh, Courier. Courier, which I also delivered to, because I told mm-hmm. you I delivered both of those newspapers when I was about ten, eleven at that time. So I just got fascinated about the world of uh, journalism then, and uh, later on, not knowing that you know it would be my career. You know, I ended up uh, graduating from Sac State. I worked at a couple of uh, newspapers. Uh, mainstream and small, uh, and then I ended, you know, ended up at Sacramento Observer, right? Which I, uh, I want to say, I love origin stories. So you even just talking about that one defining moment of finding that paper again. We we were saying before we hit record about representation as well too, about how important that was. We'll give a shout out to Rob Copeland, one of our uh, classmates who was his family was it was a huge influence for you as well in in Champagne. So representation in these <sighs> defining moments. Are, are are very important for all of us in, in our careers. Again, you could Thank have been you in- for bringing that up. Because, uh, and I'll, Rob, I hope you viewing this too, because as I said, when I was going to Champaign Central at the time, uh, Central High School, um, Arnold Brown and I, you know, we were, all three of us were really good friends. Of course, we were having classes and things like that. We used to go over to uh, Rob's house, which uh, I forget what that- uh, uh, That name how right. that neighborhood was. It was right next to Devonshire. And what I noticed when I used to go over there, his parents, his parents, okay? They were the first black deans at the University of Illinois, okay? And I'm not, I was not used to being around, you know, this type, these people with this type of uh, these careers and statue in the community. Later on, I'll find out about their uh, involvement in the, in the, in the uh, community. And I'm like, wow, this, 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 this is the way it should be. You know, this is what this is how I want my life to be. I want to be a productive mm-hmm. citizen like them. And then they were always around, you know, African American students, college students. And uh that 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 was a really big impact on on what I want to do because 
that this is my sophomore year. And then my sophomore year, I knew Tony Ray Harvey wanted to go to college. I'm getting out of Champaign Urbana and I'm going to school and I'm going to do what they are doing. Okay, I may not be a, on the educational side, but I want to do something like this. The storytelling side. I mean, that's storytelling is just it's it's in your DNA. Hey, it, and no disrespect to what was going on there because the community that I grew up in, the black community that I grew up, in, we were a village. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody took care of everybody. Okay, but as far as the occupations that were happening at that time, as far as, you know, I worked in the original pancake house. It was cool. You know, I had money in my pocket, bought cars. Raggedy cars. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I got the A and B, but um, I didn't want to be stuck into that mold where I'm going to be, you know, the head cook of this restaurant or the head janitor. You know, you know, I, I, I that's nothing that I was looking for. I want a right. great opportunity, and I saw that in this couple that was raising their son. Okay, because Rob ended up going to the University of Illinois. Did he transfer to Morehouse? College in uh, uh, Atlanta, okay. And then later on, I learned he come from a long bloodline of uh, educators and stuff. So, yes, I, I have I, to interject. So, Rob actually has been on the podcast too. We will post a link uh, to here. It was right after he came out with his book. It's episode ten called "Systemic Racism" with, with Rob Copeland, and actually talks about his book as well too, which just covers everything that you're talking about too, of him diving yes. into his own history, which I know is is part of what your your current goal and your future goal. It's, it's just incredible, you know, the, how things, you know, just turned out. And, uh, I really um, credit the, the experience that I had with that family. Because we mm -hmm. used to go over there for a weekend. It's like, Rob, where's your family at? Why you got us over here, man? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they, they went to that conference here. And, you know, we was going out to parties, you know, going to the line I used uh, different spots and things like that. We had to drag Arnold out there. You know, Arnold was a big <laughs> square. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure Arnold listens to this. Let's just kicked it with the women. Which is what I mean. And I, well, you and I left Champagne around that that same year too. But what I love, and you said, is that um, that you wanted to find what your goal was, and it wasn't necessarily in education, but then going into media. And again, you know, this is in the the late '80s, and here you are going out to California, and then you were saying how you started to write the entertainment piece. And again, I. I'm assuming it's that not a lot of, it's not a lot of black males, you know, in this position. Okay. I mean, That's the, was the my question. Room, yeah. Yeah. The newsroom was really not really that diverse. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was basically non-black people. Let's put it like that. Uh, dominated, you know, the culture of uh, uh, journalism and, and mainstream newspaper. Okay. Later on, I told you, I looked at the uh, started work for Sacramento uh, Observer, which is an African-American uh, newspaper. It's been around 60 years next month in uh, November itself. Oh, awesome. So, but uh, it, it, that was pretty challenging itself because I worked at the Sacramento Bee for a couple of years. And, you know, a lot of these reporters who were there, they had been there for 25, 30, 40 years. And especially in the sports department, I'm like, man, you know, I'm trying to get to the NBA. I'll never get that. That guy's not getting up out that seat. And then, you know, it was, you know, some racial elements that was going on too there. So, but, we pretty sure. much understood. And just while we're talking about this, now things has changed, okay? Now things that matter to the black community matters to everyone, okay? 
Mm -hmm. right. Then when you know you got this online digital revolution that's going on. Transparency. People, transparency. People don't have to buy the newspaper and be forced to read whatever is there. You can go anywhere now and get your news. And that's basically what's been happening with the black community with all these other uh, media outlets and platforms, okay? So now, what newspapers are learning right now, the mainstream news, you gotta come to us. We don't have to go to you now, okay? And then for these certain stories, you know, positive stories about what's going on in our community and what uh, uh, affects us and what we want to get resolved, you know, and stuff like that, you have to come to us and get those stories, okay? You're not gonna put me on the front page of the, uh, of the, uh, Let's say the Sacramento Bee had my story at the headline above fold saying that I shot and killed somebody. Those days are basically gone. Okay. All right. Or, or be and are being called out. You're being a scientist or come up with a cure for COVID or something like that. And a black woman did, you know, uh, was part of the, uh, uh, the process of uh, coming up with a serum, you know, for us to get those uh, vaccination shots. Those are the stories right now. So, with the revolution going on right now, this is where we are right now. This is the same for everybody's community too. Uh, the Japan, uh, the Asian community, the Latino mm -hmm. community, okay, the Jewish community, the Indian. Let's community, just say uh, anything, but but the what is the traditional, as I say, top of the food chain, white male representation. <laughs> that's anybody who knows me knows that's kind of my my standard line. And I think what's interesting too is that it had to. I know it it affected. It did, and it and it and it still does somewhat. How things are reported and the lens with which it was seen, right? And so that that is something. And I I I love that people are calling it out too, of you know what would be trauma porn, as I like to say, of like <laughs> only having like these super traumatic stories and 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 nothing positive. And probably one example that I saw recently, and I really appreciated that they they called it out was a story about how using meditation and yoga specifically in the education system for, uh, you know, kids who had gotten into trouble. And it was, I mean, it had a positive spin to it. Right. But what they did was they used a black child in the photo. And I loved it that, that folks called it out because it was saying, you know, kids in, in uh, detention and, you know, several, uh, that a lot of different people called it out to say it's that visual of that, like you said, above the fold, the storyline mm -hmm. of, of how it's it's put out there. And that was my curiosity in, in talking mm -hmm. to you too as a black man in media for this long and seeing the change and then also balancing that reporting slash just, uh, social justice. Sensationalism. Sensationalism, okay. yes. Radio yes. does it, course mm -hmm. print does it, as mm -hmm. we were talking about that too. And mm -hmm. uh Television Movies. is a big violator of it too. So yeah. that, that whatever can get ratings, viewership, you know. But like I said, those those days have changed. Okay, now they want to see what's they really have going to come on. to you. Okay, that social justice uh, issues that's happening right here, politics, as you can see, you know, it's the big thing about voting and all these things, all these things that matter to us. Now, there have been a lot of outlets that have dedicated, they have created platforms dedicated just for the purpose of the Black voice. Okay, I know the B here in Sacramento, they carved out a little uh, section where they just have these reporters working on this section, okay, of the Black community. 
okay, and maybe another one working on the religious community, you know, but it's just changed the whole dynamics of everything. And I'll go back to it. The digital revolution, online revolution changed the game, okay? Because I don't have to pick up your paper with my morning coffee and just read anything that you have forced right there. I can go here and I can go there, basically on my phone, you know, and pick up these uh, type of articles and type of uh, information and news. And I, and it's definitely about truth telling, obviously. And talk a, a bit about your experience of balancing between reporting and social justice, because one thing you you mentioned before we went on air was this the the um, the percentage of the, in the police department and the fire department in Sacramento. <laughs> yes. And if you're okay with kind of putting that out that business yeah. out on on the highway yeah. of you know how how you how you stay safe how you you know manage your energy of of social justice of reporting <laughs> and then also getting that out there. Uh, let me start at the top of here, though. You know, when we talk about the newspaper, people got to understand the thing that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, that was fueled by newspapers, okay, against the Black community. Let me get that out the way first, okay? Thank Let's you. roll up here to uh, 2022, October 2022, because uh, <clears throat> I could talk about that Tulsa, Oklahoma thing, but- That's a whole other show. I mean, I need, we, we're, uh, stay tuned uh, for another show on that. Thank you. And we hope we can get to that. Sacramento uh, is about 2.5, 3 million people here, live here in a, basically a five-county region. Um, there's people from every corner of the earth here. Me, me, as I told you, there's about 60 or 70 different languages. Okay, But on the government, uh, the, the, the local government side, the police department and the fire department are 970 the 75% white, mm -hmm. okay? So you have these people in public safety who's, you know, taking care of these entity, entities out here. And not all of them look like us. Right, <laughs> because, because we have all these different cultures and faces and, you know, like I said, people from every corner of this earth, you know, of this planet that lives here. Okay. And, and I will say, I will say this conversely, what the problem with that too, is that again, if you don't know about lived experience and I'm not saying that the large percentage, okay, I am saying, <laughs> all right, I'm going to say it uh, probably of these people in law enforcement don't know about lived experience. So that if you don't, they're filtering it through their lens of what they have seen on the media, what they have been taught and whatever their family background is. So they're showing up again of being in an area that doesn't look like them at all, but they're in the place of authority. That's fucked they up. They have that authority. Yeah. And you know, the, the last police chief. That's potential for a, fuckery. I will say that. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if not, the fuckery. We have, we have a, 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 a Caucasian uh, female police chief. She's the first in the uh, 100. I think uh, the first, uh, the police department here started in 1850. And before that, we had the first black police chief. And we used to have these conversations all the time. I remember him was telling me, he's like, well, you know, and he, he was a really good police chief. The people who live in these low income areas, you know, uh, disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods and stuff like that, they, of course they're gonna see the cops different than the person who live out there in the suburb in the well-to-do well area, okay? And those cops are gonna have those, have those same type of attitudes too. 
Okay, so you got these forces, these energies that's just, you know, buttoned up against each other and you're trying to figure out how to bet the best way to police these communities. Yeah. It doesn't really change all that much because, you know, attitudes are just just attitude. Most of these cops, majority of these cops, they don't live in these neighborhoods. Okay, they, they don't get out and start shooting the basketball. Some of them do. Let me get me wrong. Not, not all, but just rarely. Okay start shooting basketball, playing with these kids and start getting to know them. Oh, you know, it's dark, you better get home. <laughs> you right. know, those things just didn't happen, okay? But I know when I first got here, the climate was really high because gangs, okay? So not only what's going on within our community, it's what's going on with, with, with the cop. Because trust me, they want to get home too, to their kids too. Okay, so now they got to look out and see, you know, if you got any dope, if you got any guns, are you going to shoot me with this? Are you going to stab me and stuff like that? And they're on high alert at all times, okay? But they're not going to happen in the suburbs. It's only going to happen in these other certain neighborhoods. So, you, like I said, you got all these energies just bumping up against each other, and it just really can cause, uh, uh, it could be a chaotic, chaotic scene. <clears throat> Because and then of, you're reporting on it. Yes. And then you're reporting on it. I mean, and that's and that's the, 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 you know, the interesting. I, you know, I did the Stephon Clark thing, which was big here, on March 18, and that was a big thing. A lot of uh, protests and demonstrations were going on, and then you know you had all these other things going across the nation. Okay, and then we're dealing. You know, these protesters are dealing with these cops. Okay, and which mainly are uh, men and women who are, you know, like I said, non, non-Black that they're dealing with, okay? And some of them, you know, they don't care. These cops talk shit right back at these people mm-hmm. and stuff. They're like, oh, you can do whatever you want to do. This is going to be, you know, this is going to uh, boil, uh, this is going to end pretty soon, and y'all going to go back and do, you know, just talking shit with the people. Cops right. and stuff. So, yeah, I, I've been, I, yeah, I, I've been there. And I have to keep a type of relationship with law enforcement, and that's every day. I get media advice from them about uh, a lot of cases. You know, mm-hmm. mainly my beat has been uh, homeless, homelessness because we, everybody's having a lot of problems here. But we have who what? And, and uh, since COVID, I mean, it's probably done went up like three hundred percent. And I, I always say this about COVID. I mean, the you know one of the the biggest things of it is it showed it didn't. It obviously created new problems, but it literally it showed so many cracks in an existing system uh, that exacerbated anybody that was already in a, you know, in a in a in a state where they were they were you know at risk, you know, yeah. and that's it. It really shows that. So the interesting thing for you too is that obviously you're uh, you've covered every beat. So sports is a huge part too. And I'm going to put a bunch of links in the show notes at shit. We don't talk about podcast.com. Go <laughs> look at that. Cause that's where all these links, including to your book articles you've written um, again, but, but I want to follow up because I want to talk about the photo behind you about how important this was for you. And then of course you started your, your journey and then we'll, we'll wrap up too, because you, you started your journey of traveling around to some places in the South where your family is fun. So talk about Bruce Beach and then and Bruce we'll Beach, about, yes. Um, yeah. uh, California, right now, they have this uh, California task force uh, to study and develop uh, reparations. Uh, it became law in uh, September 2020. So I've been covering that. 
I started covering it before it became law. Okay, mm -hmm. and you know, they're studying you know the harms and the effects and what it has done to Black Californians and things like that. And in the midst of that, uh, the Bruce Beach situation emerged. <clears throat> Bruce Beach was uh, it, it, this Black couple back in 1912 bought this property on the beach in Manhattan Beach, which is uh, right outside of uh, uh, Los Angeles, right on the beach. Okay, and it be really became popular. But they were having all type of problem, problems with the, the people from Manhattan Beach. There was a lot of racism that was going on. And it was becoming so popular that the black couple, the Bruces, were going to expand on it. They were going to, you know, add some other things on it. And they were going to hire black people. You know, that was the whole thing. Okay, just like Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood. And they um, somehow the city council of Man Manhattan back in the early 1920s they used eminent domain to take their property from them. Mm -hmm. Okay. They had spent $1,200 to get this property. Now, you know, in 1912, $1,200, that's a lot of money. Okay. For a black couple too in Southern California. So they eventually used eminent domain to uh, take over the property. Uh, it was a struggle and they um, said they were going to turn it into a park, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that for about 30 years. And eventually what they ended up doing after they took the property. And that they, was the city or the state? The, 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 the city of city. Manhattan, Manhattan okay. Beach. Okay. They ended up building a lifeguard center there to train lifeguards and stuff. And that facility is still there. So uh, the family, you know, for years, like, hey, they illegally took the property from us. We want it back. These are the heirs of the Bruce's and... Along the line, when they started reparations, uh, the task force, uh, they drew up a bill. Uh, Senator uh, Stephen Bradford, who's black, he's from uh, L.A., Gardena, that area, Democrat. Um, he drew up a bill, and the governor, Newsom, Gavin Newsom, signed it, and they got their, they're getting their property back. They got their property back. But yeah. and the reason why you bring that up is that photo back there. I took that photo on uh, September excuse me, September 25th, 2022, uh, just a couple of weeks here ago. I had to get there. That was my first time visiting there. And I needed to walk the grounds on that because I thought that was a pretty interesting case because mm. it can't be a catalyst to uh, reparations that's going on here in the state of California, which they hope that will be a blueprint for the rest of the, rest of the country, okay? And, and we talk about Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, but these things were happening all across the country. Okay, I told you about the situation that I'm covering right now. I'm about to write a uh, expose on it for the California State uh, Library Foundation about Santa Monica, which is 12 miles from Manhattan Beach, uh, Bruce Beach. Okay, there was a black community living there, and they had businesses and houses and things like that. Okay, and they used eminent domain to move them up out of there. They actually burned down their homes and businesses. Wow to get this black community out of there. Now, if you go to Santa Monica Day, I mean, Santa Monica is the place to be, okay? That's where all the rich folks live, right there on the beach, you know? It was the last black beach community there up until 1958, okay? And the catalyst to doing that was Interstate 10. Mm. Okay, Eisenhower passed the Federal Highway Act in 1957, okay? They were gonna do all these, created this, uh, Highway federal system, you know, like the I 55 and 57 back home. 
here where I live at is I-80, I-880, you know, mm-hmm. interstate highways, okay? But what they did, they were going through these black communities to do these things. They weren't going through these rich, you know, white suburbs, okay, and destroying homes and businesses to place these things. So they went through these lower income areas, disadvantaged areas, to put these highways there. I-10 starts right there where Santa Monica is, and it goes up north. So they're going through all these black communities, starting with Santa Monica, to put that there. Not only that, too, just to make this real quick, okay? All right? Because they burn these houses down there. And I'll tell you what type of houses they were, which resemble the Deep South. They built the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, okay? If you have been watching TV in our time through the years, that's where they held the Academy Awards, the Oscars, for many, many, many years, okay? No one knowing through all that time that that was a Black community that lived right there at that location, downtown Santa Monica, okay? They're about to refurbish that building right now and turn it into something else, but it's not an auditorium anymore. But a Black community lived there. Okay, that's a that's the Tulsa, Oklahoma's Black Wall Street story right there. And what I'm learning when I'm doing all these investigations is that Tulsa wasn't the only one. They're doing this across the country. And that highway system, like here in Sacramento, they did the same thing. Mm -hmm. Where this uh, serial killer was uh, killing people back in the 1980s. They did that the same way. It was a poor, impoverished area. You know, let's uh, build the, uh, uh, construct the uh, highway going through those neighborhoods. This is the black and the white neighborhood. I live in Denver, I-70, right through it. Guess okay. guess what neighborhood that went right straight so, through. Yeah. And and it's such a great point too. And I, I love the, that with your media eye and your curiosity, which is great too, that you just dive so deeply into it. And, and story, I'm about to blow that up. I, I cannot wait. I, I don't know about that. that no, I, I didn't. It's a historical district right now, okay? Mm-hmm. And I, well, I was telling you real quick, too, Bill, about this uh, shotgun house, mm-hmm. okay? These yes. black people live in shotgun houses. If you know anything about the Deep South, you know, you open up the door and you can look through the back door straight through. You can mm-hmm. shoot a bullet right through it, okay? Mm-hmm. And these became like little shack over time. So it wasn't easy on the eyes, let's just say that. So the city felt like we're going to burn these houses down and keep black people out and move them up out of there. They had to relocate. Okay. Now that term shotgun house that I've learned come from an African term called shogun. Okay. okay. Meaning houses too. Okay. They built a, there's a art piece right there. They call this the Belmar. You can look it up too. Uh, the Belmar neighborhood, the Belmar triangle. This is where these black folks live at. They built a art piece there. It's a four-piece art piece of a shotgun house. A window, a porch, the house, and uh, boy, I forget, it's, it's four parts of it. We call it the resurrection of uh, four stanzas, okay? And it depicts a shotgun house, okay? I didn't understand it because I've been there twice, you know, three days that I went there because the first time I saw it, I didn't understand it. I said, I have to go back here and see what's mm-hmm. going on. The second time, I studied it a little bit more than I understand what they were talking about. The red is painted red. That means fire. Mm-hmm. Okay. The whole thing was written. Then they have a, a couple 
photos inscribed into it. I think I was telling you about it. It had something to do about those black families and home because these people were part of the great migration west, not north or east, west. Okay, look for opportunities then. They came from the deep south and stuff. Gone, gone. This is a Tulsa, Oklahoma story. And a lot, a lot of people do not know it, but I'm trying to do my best. I got about two or three stories that I'm going to put out with it. The big, the main one is, will be with the uh, California State uh, Library Foundation because, you know, I do a lot of uh, freelancing on my own as far as these, these type of researches. And yes, you know, I've been all over the country. I've been to Slave Plantation. I went to the Lynching Museum, Montgomery, Alabama, the um, National Memorial for uh, Peace and Justice, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and the Legacy uh, Museum there, uh, Selma, <clears throat> Selma, uh, Alabama. Um, right across the bridge. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bridge. Yeah. I that, and that was just, you know, by coincidence when I was going to Montgomery, I didn't know it was on my GPS, and I had to stop there on the way back there. I've been to segregated beaches at Gulf of Mexico. Okay. You didn't realize and, where where that when you were a kid. And swimming I with them there. and yeah and it used to be segregated and i used to swim there and it was just only a few years removed from segregation that i was able to swim there when i was younger you know when i used to come back from illinois and visit my family you know in the south and stuff so all these things kind of like culminate you know the things that's happened in my life and my career and i'm just going back over it right now and i'm just trying mm -hmm. to share the black experience right now that's just me as a black journalist okay and i want to share it with everybody okay i've been here i've been a learner i've learned i've learned about executive order 9066 here in sacramento okay the government took 120,000 japanese people of japanese descent during world war 1 uh excuse me world war 2 and moved them off the mainland and put them in these incarceration camps okay a lot of these people are still around they're in their 80s and their 70s i interviewed these people okay mm. I, I've, I've learned about the uh, Mexican uh, Revolution here, okay? I've, I've learned about uh, uh, the Jewish Holocaust camps, you know, people living right here in Sacramento, okay? That's just me being a Black journalist, okay? A reporter, a Black journalist. I want to learn about these things, okay? Uh, and, of course, you know, with the uh, thing that happened, you know, with the people of uh, Japanese descent, they're trying to help Black people in California get their reparations the way they did because they were compensated stuff. So a lot of this stuff just culminated about what I do with my career. And you know, it's a lot of it. And I could talk yeah. about it for days on and days in, but that's just who I am. And all this stuff moved back from where, I, where we grew up from. It <laughs> is. Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois stuff. So, well, this is why I want, oh, go ahead. Say that again. I love what I do. I, I, this is what I, I do I, too. I do so. <laughs> That's what I started to say. This is why I wanted to talk to you because we obviously follow each other on social media. And so I'm constantly in awe of and viewing what, you know, your continuous journey is too. Because like you said, these are things you didn't even know. Now you're coming back yeah, from your own, your different, right. Your different lens of, okay, we, what was normalized for us now with the curious eye of like, Hey, what was that about? It's kind of the, the whole crux of like, what's that about? <laughs> you get to, you get to come. I mean, look, mm. uh, I told you, I'm the son of great, great grandson of the great migration going North. You know, my people came in from Mississippi, mainly Mississippi, parts of Louisiana going North. And they ended up in a uh, one set, including my mother ended up in a uh, champagne. Okay, that's where I was born. All right. I, I learned that 
some of the people who were illiterate, the black people were illiterate coming in from the deep south. They were headed to Chicago and they said, well, you can't read, but look for that C, look for that C, okay? So they're looking for the C and then champagne comes up. They don't know how to read champagne. They're on their way to Chicago. They end up in champagne. That was part of the great migration. I'm learning about so interesting. Oh, yes, I love that. I just that the accidental serendipity too uh, of that. I had not heard about that either. Uh, but it's just so much. And I told yeah. you before we started this. Not only that, you know, I like sharing these experiences, but I'm trying to learn about myself and my people. Okay, we were brought here to change. Okay, mm-hmm. and when I'm learning about this stuff, like you know, the Manhattan Beach, the Bruce Beach, the Santa Monica, Tulsa, and other you know, communities across the country. We have been trying to be productive citizens, but sometimes when we get there, you take it away. Yeah. <laughs> By a way to take it away, you burn it down. Right. Okay? And then cover it up with a with a little story. You know, they don't they don't like that. There's there's a lot have, of genteelness. What were you gonna say? A lot of it. I have an issue going up here, it's like 38 miles out of Sacramento where they found gold back in the 1848, 1849. Uh, John Marshall, white dude, he was a carpenter. He's up there uh, cutting down trees and stuff, and he found gold, okay? Well, that story hasn't been completed either, okay? Because they brought slaves over here to work their mines, okay? And they ended up being free, and they got, they mined for gold, and then they started buying up property, blah, 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 okay? But what I've learned about that, okay? James Marshall, you didn't dis- discover gold, Okay, that was Native American people who were living up there for tens and thousands of years. You don't think that they knew what they was living and eating and hunting and doing all that stuff on their own land, you know, uh, trying to obtain resources? Okay, gold may not have been a value to them as it was, you know, these other people, but it was there. Yes, I, I know. No, I I know you have another appointment too, and that oh my gosh, I mean, he, what, and I here's what I'm, I'm gonna uh, finish with, and then we'll, we'll do some calls to action. Your rabid curiosity continues to serve us all, so I appreciate that. I it really Thanks. why I always pay attention to everything that you're doing because when you, and your ra- rabbit holes are everywhere like that. You just said even with the the gold and continue to dig, my friend. Hey, you know. Me growing up in Champaign-Urbana, you said it too. We didn't talk about it either, okay? There was, really, there was no, us growing up when we were younger, there were no colors, okay? And that's really, you know, uh, what we're dealing with here in America. So here we are, I'm not trying to tell off on our age, years later, we're still trying to learn about each other, and but we already understood each other, okay? Because mm-hmm. I had friends, you know, black, white, Asian, you know, Puerto Ricans there. And we didn't care about all this stuff. Okay? We didn't. We didn't care about this. You know, it was just, a, you know, us growing up and respecting each other and trying to get along at the same regard. And this is growing up in the heart of America. Stuff. These we, things will always stay with me. Okay. Um, I, 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 I built my life around it. And that these are things just value to me. And I really appreciate growing up in that little that little area to get to this point where I can share these type of stories and these experiences with you. And, and I so appreciate that. And I do, I, I, I also feel such a fondness for that. We had to go away to appreciate it. Most of us, <laughs> we come back to it and then come back and say, Hey, I think my idea of what your experience was may have been different. 
And that's the, that's the difference in coming back and being curious about someone else's experience and saying, Hey, that I may not understand what you're actually going through or help me understand what's going on in your world. And I think staying curious is the main, the main, main piece to it too. So I so appreciate you, know, you. living in New York kind of well rounded you out. Oh, it, it, it humbled me to go, Hey, Hey, little girl, <laughs> you know, you grew up in a, a pretty sheltered environment and, and being somewhere where I was uh, a minority, um, uh, which is such an odd word to use now because white people are kind of the minority, which I'm all about. I'm all about celebrating that as well. Like going like, Hey, you are not, you're not the top of the food chain. It really did help me, but staying curious and continuing to ask questions about things and do, do research is the, the biggest piece. Where's the best way, way we can follow all your antics? You think? Oh man. You know, you can follow me basically on, on Twitter at uh, Tony Ray Harvey. Uh, of course, you know, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I actually have my nieces as my uh, photo and the picture of the mm -hmm. uh, Memorial Stadium from the University of the Fighting Lion Line behind us. So that, that would be me <laughs> if you don't yeah. know me by face. Uh, of course, I'm on Instagram and uh, I have a YouTube channel, uh, Antonio Tony Ray Harvey. Uh, and I post a lot of uh, stuff that happens around here and across the state. I just really just picked up on that because it's been uh, an excellent tool uh, for my, uh, journalism, uh, work that I listen, that I YouTube is the second biggest search engine. So folks yeah, pay attention yeah. to that we'll have everything in the show notes though. So Tony, it's been delightful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, today. I'm sorry. I didn't get to talk about my covering professional sports, but we'll get around to that some other time too. the Sacramento Kings and we, the uh, Golden State Warriors. <laughs> that's a huge part of your life too. We, we, we had too much to say on these other pieces. So we'll bring you back, my friend. Thank you so much. Thanks yeah, for tuning thank, in everyone. Thank you so much. You know, I want to do this. This was, a, it was an honor to sit down and have these type of conversations. My honor, my honor, my friend. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You can check out the show notes and guest links at shitwedonttalkaboutpodcast.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe and give it a like or leave a review, especially if it's a good one. See you next time. Bye.